We are so glad you've joined us today. If God is doing something in your life through this ministry, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at live at trinitynwa.com to tell us your story. You can also go online to give to this ministry by going to trinitynwa.com and clicking the red Give Online button. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to experience more content, visit our website or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Morning, everyone. What a beautiful day to be at church, amen? Glad to see all of you here today. For those of you who are new, my name is Kyle, but it's probably already on the screen, so you can see that. But uh, it's good to have you. I'm the Connection Pastor here, and I'm also the Campus Pastor over at the Trinity Fellowship Reach Center. I'm not the lead pastor, but I do have the privilege of bringing the word to you today, and I want to thank Pastor Darren for the opportunity to do that. He's going to be preaching to our Hispanic congregation, Trinity Fellowship in Espanol, later today. So he came to me and he said, uh, why don't you just take the opportunity to, uh, to share? And so I was uh, more than happy to do that. It's good to see several old friends, people that I haven't seen in a long time here today. Really good to have you. I want to ask you to pray with me this morning. Uh, as, a, as I'm down there worshiping, I just really feel um, a sense of urgency to pray and you might think, well, yeah, you're at church, you know, but I don't know. I just I just I just feel like I really want to pray. I feel like we need the, the help of the Holy Spirit this morning. Would you pray with me? I don't want you to listen to me pray. I want you to join in with me. OK, Father, we need you this morning, Lord. I pray that you would come by the power of your spirit and you would help us, Lord. Father, that we would not be content to settle in for the ordinary God, that we would not be OK with complacency, God, that we would. Uh, be hungry, Lord, that we would move forward, God, toward you today, Lord, that we wouldn't just sit back. God, help us today. Uh, make us alive. God, help us to understand the word, to hear it clearly. God, help it, Father, to penetrate deeply into our heart, to challenge us, Lord God, and that we would, as I said, respond to your word, Lord. God, I pray, Father, that you would make your church alive, that you would make your church active, that you would make your your church, the light that it's supposed to be and the salt that it's supposed to be in the world because, Lord, it's so desperately needed right now in our times and in our cultures, Father. Help us in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So by now you've uh, probably heard about fidget spinners, right? Um, I want to talk to you a little bit today about faith and fidget spinners. Anybody have a fidget spinner, actually? Anybody? We got one back here. Nice. Go ahead and give that thing a spin. Go ahead and give that thing a spin. Faith and fidget spinners. Uh, you know, these little kind of like sort of like a boomerang shape piece of plastic and metal with uh, ball bearings in the middle. I can't remember who it was. I think somebody in our uh, church that's an engineer that said, like, who would have known that ball bearings would become so popular? You know, like they've been around forever. Right. Um other day, I was standing at the door, uh, just spinning it as I was wel- welcoming people into church. And Kenneth Allen, is Kenneth here for this service? Maybe not. Kenneth, if you don't know him, goes to our church. And he stopped by, and he said uh, he, that he was at, a, at an expo or something like that for work. And his work team was there. And one of the, the tables or the booths was giving out uh, fidget spinners. And so he said, everybody got one on his team. And he said, and all day they were walking around the expo center just doing this. Like, I don't know what the big deal is about these things. I don't know what the big deal is about these things. 
I don't know what the big deal is about these things. Give me my fidget spinner, you know. And uh, the other day I went to Walgreens to uh, buy two for my two older kids after I had used it as a bribe to get them to do their chores for a week without them complaining. That was really where I was successful in parenting that week. So I went, uh, I walked into Walgreens and I was like, do you have fidget spinners? She's like, we have one box right here. You better hurry. You know, so like I look around to see if I'm going to be tackled or speared by anybody as I make my way toward the box. And I go up there and I, I take one out of the box and I, I spin it. And then I grab three, one for each of them and one for me. So why the craze? There's some science that's starting to emerge uh, about why people like them so much. I did a little bit of research, not much, but I found one article that shed some light on it, gave some uh, different ideas. One thought is that fidget spinners may occupy a part of your brain that would otherwise distract you with random thoughts. So imagine that your brain is a family that needs to make a decision. Anybody that is in a family that has young children or you've had young children know that if you're in the car or you're in a, especially like a confined space and there are small children, if they are not occupied with something, they can become a great deterrent to making an important decision. So these thoughts that distract us are like the little children of our brains and the fidget spinners help to occupy them. There's actually somebody that wrote a book called Fidget to Focus outwit your boredom, century strategies for living with ADHD. I was like, man, I need a nap after reading the title of that book. So it's thought that fidgeting may prevent your mind from being occupied from obsessive and unhealthy thoughts like, what do other people think about me? Why am I not more attractive? Uh, Why do other people seem more successful than me on Facebook? And why isn't Justin Bieber returning my phone calls Another possibility is that body movements are actually part of thinking. Um, it's part of the, that process. So have you ever tried like writing a long email or talking to someone on a date or singing a song in your car or preaching a sermon without moving? Have you ever tried to do it by, while being completely motionless? I mean, can you imagine if I were to come up here and stand here and I will preach the rest of my message to you like this for the rest of the time. It would be creepy and awkward, right? So it's thought that this this helps us to activate our brain in some way. It's a part of thinking. A third possibility is that fidgeting serves as a ritual. And rituals can offer uh, comforting predictability, familiarity, structure that may be absent in real life. Some of the benefits of rituals include, you know, calming us and helping us to focus. Repetitive motions such as squeezing one of those little stress balls or tapping your pen can be a comforting ritual. So I know that you must be wondering at this point, what's the application for us here this morning? Because I know you didn't come to the pulpit to tell us scientific theories behind why people like fidget spinners. You are correct in your thinking The main and only point that I want to make to you this morning about fidget spinners that applies to the message is this. Fidget spinners and faith are alike because they're meant to be in motion. 
Fidget spinners and faith are alike because they're meant to be in motion. They're of no use without action. Like, if you don't spin it, it's pointless. It wouldn't make a great paperweight. It's not heavy enough. Some of you are like, what's a paperweight? Everybody below the age of, I don't know what, maybe like 25 or something. Like, what's a paperweight? It's something that cool. You, well, it typically was cool. Pretty heavy that you put on your desk, you held down papers with. But it's not heavy enough to be a good paperweight. And also, it's not good to leave it lying around because, as you see, one of my orange pieces has popped out. And apparently, some kids are choking on these pieces. And, and according to Pastor Brian... Earlier this week, he said you may even get lead poisoning or there may be mercury on it. You know, I mean, China and their health standards. You know, what can you do? Faith and fidget spinners depend on action for purpose. Without action, they're incomplete. You know, lately, I've been thinking a lot about the importance of living out my faith. And really, one of the questions among many that that brought this on was the question of, is it more important for me to, to have a perfect theology, to have all of the right answers or to live like Christ? What's more important? Of course, we have statements of faith in our church, but there are certain things in the Bible which fall into areas of some level of incomplete information that leave us to some extent guessing. Of course, this doesn't apply to essential Christian doctrine. We know that. Things like there is one God. God, the one eternal spirit, exists in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and the Savior. He is fully God and fully man. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, raised to life on the third day and ascended to heaven. The church is Christ's body. Jesus is coming back again to rule and reign. We know all of these things for certain. But on other things like perfectly understanding the book of Revelation... Every bit of it. Perfectly understanding how end times will play out. I have to ask, is it more important that we have all the answers or pretend to have all the answers or live like Jesus right now? And there's another issue which really has caused me to think. It's caused me to check myself. Over the last year in our country with the intense and divisive election cycle that we went through with all the major cultural shifts that are happening in our nation with the media wars and so on. I have observed something both in myself and with other people, other Christians that alarms me. I have witnessed mostly through the crazy world of social media a behavior that seems to say that if I ascribe to the right set of beliefs, then I have done my part. As a Christian, if I ascribe to the right set of beliefs, if I say that I believe this, then I have done my part. There's nothing else for me to do. I'm on the I'm right. You're wrong. And that's all there is to it. And while there is truth, some truth in that. I believe that we're missing the mark when it comes to faith in some ways. So if if a person says, I believe in Jesus, I believe in my Church's understanding of the Bible. I have the right theology. I vote the right way. I listen to the right music. I like the right pages on Facebook. I support the right movements. I take the right jabs at the other side politically. Then I'm good. I'm everything that God wants me to be. I've done my part. And like I said, I've seen all of this in myself and others. While doing what faith actually requires seems to be less important In these extremely divided times that we live in. 
So I ask you, is faith just believing the right thing? I think that the whole of Scripture bears another understanding of faith, one that is much bigger, more beautiful, more active, and more powerful. Do you remember the story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18? I think that's a good one for what we're talking about right now. You have this Pharisee who's a religious leader and this tax collector who is infamously sinful and seen as a traitor to his own country going to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stands up and does everything right. He believes all the right things and says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. God, I think I'm not like this tax collector over here. I, I believe all the right things. I do all the right things. And Jesus said, but yet the tax collector stood at the back. He would not even look up to heaven. Because the sincerity of his faith caused him to act in a way that was honest. He was humble and he was repentant. And Jesus said, who went down to their house justified before God? It was a tax collector. So I have some big questions for us this morning. Are there any works in our lives that indicate that our faith is active? Is there anything different? Do any of our actions support what we say we believe? Is there anything different in the way that we live than in the lives of other people who do not have faith in Christ? There should be. There should be. There has to be. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, I believe that he had a fuller, or he writes of a fuller understanding of faith than we often think about and hear about. I believe that James represents the other side of the coin that is faith. James' emphasis on faith gives us a more fully biblical understanding of faith. And we're going to be looking at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 this morning. So you can go ahead and turn there. And as you're getting there, I want to give you a little bit of context about this letter. It's written primarily to Jewish Christians who are dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And based on the content of the letter, we can assume that there were disputes among some of these believers. There were Christians who were being enticed and even partaking of the sinful things of the world. Things that they were forbidden to take part of. They were in their churches favoring wealthy people over other people, poor people. And we know that there are no classes and there are no divisions in the body of Christ. We're all one body. And there were Christians who also seemed to be able to talk a good game. But they weren't walking the walk. They were neglecting those who were less fortunate and in need. And James writes them for all of these reasons. And in those reasons, he emphasizes the importance of living faith. Faith that is at work. Faith that produces obedience and good works. And I think that he is arguing that real faith in God, when it is put to the test, it will always respond with obedience and good works. Having real faith does not mean perfection. No. But it also cannot mean a complete absence of good works. It can't. It doesn't mean perfection. So don't worry. That's not what I'm requiring of you this morning. That's not what I'm challenging you to. I fall way short of that. 
But what I know faith cannot mean is a complete absence of obedience and good works. And in the teachings of Jesus and Paul, you will find this understanding affirmed. Though different teachers emphasize different things, different aspects, it is there. Jesus said that you will know a tree by the fruit that it bears. And Paul says that the only thing that matters is faith working in love in Galatians 5, 6. You see, because true faith always produces good works in the love of Christ. Always. I think it's very likely that James is dealing with an abuse of the Apostle Paul's teaching on grace and faith. An abuse that Paul himself was aware of. It says in Romans 6, Paul writes in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then you skip down to verse 15. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. You do not know that if, or excuse me, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So you see right there that Paul understood very well that some people were abusing what he was teaching about grace and faith. And he corrected them. So it's extremely clear when we look at the Bible that Paul and James do not contradict as some have said they do. But they complement each other. So we got to understand the purpose and the occasion of the writings. When we go to the text of the Bible, we have to understand these things. So often Paul was writing to deal with those who had been teaching that people had to keep certain parts of the Jewish law in order to be saved. Hence, his emphasis on grace by faith. And James is writing to those who are abusing this grace. As Paul says, they're most likely using it as a license to sin. So that's why we can explain the differences in the emphasis of their writing. But true faith, church, true faith always works in and through love. So James is teaching us, and just hold your place, we're going to get there. James is teaching us that accepting a certain set of beliefs to be true is not biblical faith. In the scriptures, he's going to point out three different kinds of faith that I'm going to talk to you about that are not true faith. It's not enough for us just to attend church, to set back, to accept or or say that we believe what the Bible teaches. Faith has to first take action in us. It acts as a powerful cleansing agent in our lives as we respond to the presence of the Holy Spirit, convicting us of our sin. It changes the way that we think and act and and continues to change us over time as we become more like Jesus. This morning in James 2, we're going to look at James' description of what he calls dead faith. And we're going to examine our hearts and our claim of faith against the Scripture so that the Holy Spirit can teach us and give us a clearer, more fully biblical understanding of faith. So let's look at the text. James chapter 2, 
Starting in verse 14, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Wow, it's strong, right? It's challenging. We see two kinds of faith here. We see a living faith, an active faith, and we see reference to a dead faith and a useless faith, which is really no faith at all. I like what one commentator said about it, and then I'm going to get into my main three points. He said that James is one of the New Testament books that is extremely relevant for the 21st century. Like American evangelicals, the Jewish Christians to whom James addresses his challenges are ensnared by worldliness. They're idolizing economic prosperity. Their desire for material gain has prevented them from caring for the practical needs of the less fortunate. The very heart and method of James' appeal in chapter 2 is to arouse acts of mercy from those who know that they've already received such a great mercy. James simply does not question the fact that his readers are true Christians. He appeals to them based on the reality of their new birth. Perhaps the most transparent statement to this effect is this. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. So all that James has to say is designed to shake us as believers in our faith from the comfort of worldliness and challenge us to meet the needs of others around us, the orphan and the widow. So like I said, I've not come to challenge your salvation today. That's not what I've come. I've come simply to deliver this word and you can do what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because also the Apostle Paul called us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So let's break this text down together. Three points. The first one is dead faith. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them what they need, what good is that? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. It's no good. And he gives us the practical example of a person that's in need. 
They don't have enough clothes. They don't have enough food. We can say to them all day, God bless you. You know, I have faith that God's going to provide for you. Go, be warm, be filled. But if we don't do something about it, it's of no use. Same as our faith. Just the other day, we were down here at College in Joyce, and there was a man out there with a sign asking for money. I don't. I hardly ever have cash, and this time was no different. I had no cash. But Sophie was so moved with compassion for this person. She wanted to help him. She would have gotten out of the car and given him our car. I'm convinced. She began to weep. She began to cry. She's like, Dad, we have to do something. We, I was like, baby, I don't have any cash. We, we have made up some of the bags that many of us at the church have done, the, the gift bags with food and all the things, but they happen to be, as you would know, in the other car. So we literally did not have anything. I said, it's going to be okay, baby. Somebody, no, we have to do something, Dad. We have to do something. As tears streamed down her face. And I thought, man, if we all approached our faith with the same passion and compassion, how much more active would our faith be? How much more of a difference would our faith make in the lives of the people that we come in contact with every day? Faith without works, church, James said, is dead. And then there's number two, demonic faith. Not that your faith has its origins from demons, but James is drawing a parallel. He's saying there's a similarity. He's saying, you believe in one God? Good job. Way to go. So do the demons. (laughs) And they shudder. They're terrified because they know the truth about God. You know the, the truth about God? Great. But so do they. It's not just enough, church, to ascribe to a set of beliefs. It's not just enough to get on... Facebook and tell the world what we believe. We got to get out from behind the screen, go out into the world and show them what we believe. We have to. It's quiet, but that's okay. This message really convicted me too, because I really probed my own heart and, and asked myself, where is my faith active? Outside of attending church and having my time with God, which is all great Outside of those things, outside of prayer, where is my faith active? Where is it making a difference in someone else's life? You know, there were the seven sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19. You know, they heard that Paul had been casting out demons by the name of Jesus. And they were the seven sons of a priest. And they thought, it seems to be working for Paul, so we'll go try that out. So they go to the house of a demon-possessed man and they say, we cast you out by the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. And this has always been one of the funniest scriptures to me in the whole Bible. I don't know that it should be. It might show that I have a jacked up sense of humor. But the demon-possessed man's like, Jesus I know. Paul I've heard of. But who are you? And it said they left the house, fled the house, wounded and naked. He beat the clothes off of them. So, the point is, merely naming the name of Jesus is not enough. we got to have the power of the Holy Spirit behind it. And number three, 
a deactivated faith. He said, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I didn't use the word useless because I needed another D, okay? You got to have the perfect alliteration, dead, demonic, deactivated, which if something's deactivated, it's as good as useless, right? It's useless. Deactivated. See, and, and, and the example that James gives is Abraham and Rahab, funny enough. He said that their faith was completed by his works. I was talking with Heather this morning on, on the way here, and I was like, you know, we know that Abraham had faith, but he proved it. It was completed by taking his son up the mountain. All the way to the point where he had knife in hand. He believed. Because if you read the scripture, he said, the lad and I are going to worship. And who? We, not I. We shall return. He knew. He had faith. But God required him to walk that faith out. All the way to the point where the knife was drawn. And in hand. And he said, Abraham, hold up. I got you. But for some of us, I believe that in many ways our faith has been deactivated. We're just kind of going through the motions. And as we move toward our closing here, I have a few questions for you. A few questions that I believe are going to help us to reveal the nature of our faith. Let me ask you, how do you treat your family and your friends, your neighbors and your co-workers, do you love them like Christ? How do you use your time? Do you invest any of it in the kingdom of God or in the betterment of somebody else? Or is it all used on you? How about your money? Uh-oh. Do you give generously to the work of God? I saw where a pastor recently said this. He said, I find it extremely ironic that in God we trust is printed on the very thing that we have the most difficulty trusting God with. Wow. The irony is biting, isn't it? Jesus taught a lot about money, about giving. And you can be assured that, yes, he wants you to give to the organization which he put in place to carry out his mission in the world. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is Jesus' mission. How about the things that you're good at, the talents that you have? Do you use them only for personal gain or to serve the kingdom of God? Because, see, just ascribing, as I said, to the right set of beliefs doesn't mean anything. It doesn't produce anything. What we have to accept, if you haven't already realized it and accepted it, church, is that we have moved beyond the culture having any kind of inherent respect for God, for the church, and for the word. That's just not where we're at right now in the culture. So if we truly want to be effective as disciple makers, then we have got to have a living faith that James is writing about here. If there are no works that accompany our faith, I'm afraid that we have got to be willing to ask ourselves the hard question. Can that faith save me? Have we experienced true faith or have we merely ascribed to a set of beliefs that everyone around us is believing in? And I know that that can be difficult to ponder. I understand that. But it's for our good. It's not for our bad.
It's to heal us, not to hurt us. It's to grow us in faith and in grace so that we might know the joy, church, of being a powerful and effective disciple for Jesus Christ. And if by chance you're not convinced, I'd like to close today by sharing some examples from Hebrews chapter 11, often called the Hall of Faith. And I'm going to do something. I'm going to put an emphasis on every word that shows that these heroes of faith had faith that caused them to move and to act. The activation of their faith and your faith has always been God's plan and requirement for faith that changes us and changes the world. Hebrews 11 says, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Skip down to verse 5. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. That's Enoch. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And what he went... By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with with him of the same promise. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. And you know that was faith because she was long past the age where she wanted Abraham to put his hands on her. So you knew that was a miracle. Come on, somebody. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings. By faith, when dying, Jacob blessed each of his sons. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking for forward to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover. Verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And what more shall I say? Verse 32, For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith 
conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Stand up on your feet this morning. Come on, church. We're getting ready to worship this morning. Listen, God is ready to reactivate your faith today. It is His plan for you to live in the full potential of your faith. This is a faith that both believes and enacts on the belief, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth through us. God, listen, God wants to take you, take your faith, take you to places that you've never been, to climb mountains, to defeat the enemy, to love your neighbor, to take you out of your comfort zone, to cause you to take risks, to give generously, serve wholeheartedly faith that acts and moves and changes the lives of people in the world i believe in you church your pastors believe in you but more importantly god believes in you and he is with you and he is in you so if we really want to see a difference made it happens when we start to live out our faith and that's my prayer for us this morning come on would you lift your hands and pray with me this morning father reactivate our faith reactivate our faith God don't let us be okay with just sitting on the sidelines Father don't let us be okay with being complacent God don't let us be hateful and divided God but let us be loving help us to love our enemy God in a world that refuses us in a world that mocks us in a world that hates us God that we would respond with the love of Jesus that would transform them through the power of the Holy Spirit come on church let's worship I want all of our pastors and our prayer team to join me down across the front right now. We're going to have a time of prayer. We're going to open up these altars. If you're here today and you need your faith to be reactivated, we want to pray with you that you would receive a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit, that you would be charged up, reactivated. But some of you, I know you're struggling. I know we all live in the same world. I know what this world does to us. I know the weight of the culture, how it grinds on us. I know how our faith is attacked daily and constantly, how we're mocked constantly. I understand. And so when we come into this sitting among the body of Christ, this is when we need to be encouraged. This is when we need to be reactivated and refilled. So as we go back into this song, we're going to be down here to pray with you. Whatever you have need of, we are here to pray for you. And I pray that you would step out today in boldness. And do what the message says. Act. Let your faith be in action. Amen? Let's pray, church.